He's a doctor and he keeps people healthy. She's a psychologist and she keeps people happy. And together we are Constantly Constantly Hungry. Hungry. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Celine. I'm a clinical psychologist trainee and I'm here with my lovely husband. Hi, I'm Talkeen. I'm a junior doctor working in West Yorkshire. And today we are joined by the lovely... Hi, I'm Rose. I am also a junior doctor. I'm working in the kind of Gloucester area and I also have a second life as a yoga teacher. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Um, Today's topic is all about kind of the emotional toll of working in healthcare. So one of the reasons that we're talking about this to set the scene, obviously, you know, COVID has really brought to light how much demand there is on um, people in healthcare professions. We don't want to spend too long dwelling on COVID because everyone's talking about it and we just kind of want to get away from it. But the the good thing about it is that it has highlighted some of these things that, you know, we really need to be thinking about how overworked our NHS staff are, how difficult it is to be in a social working profession um, and so on. You know, the, the types of challenges that we face on a day-to-day basis it's hard and a recent article in the British Medical Journal is showing that not only are frontline staff more at risk of physical health problems due to their work they're also more at risk of psychological problems such as depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress and substance use. And I think it's really important to bear in mind that even outside of COVID, people in these professions have much higher rates of um, pre-existing mental health issues. So you can imagine how much that's been compounded by uh, all the changes that the pandemic has brought about. The other thing to say is that doctors as a profession have the highest rates of suicide. And although there are interventions out there, obviously things like um, lack of time or stigma, you know, make it really hard for you guys to take that up, even in normal times, let alone during a global pandemic. So I think it's such an important topic. And I think we really need to be thinking about, you know, how do we help the helpers? So I think today we'll be focusing a lot on what it's like in medicine. I might touch on a little bit of what my experience is in psychology, two very different experiences. So it'll be interesting to hear what it's like um, and be able to like compare those. I might know what Rose's answer might be to this question actually, but what was your first experience of a, of the first time you either felt like you were about to cry or you were, first to, you were almost tearful? during practice mm-hmm. or during medical school. I don't know if it's one of the conversations we had whilst you were in Mansfield or if there was something before that as well. Oh gosh, that's a hard one. I mean, oh, this is going to sound awful, but there were a lot of times <laughs> I felt like I needed to cry and a lot of times I did. Um, you know, it's hard to pick out from medical school any one specific memory. And I think it's interesting you say because tears for me are something that comes naturally when I'm both happy and sad. Um, I think the most recent memory I have kind of that's clear to me of exactly what happened and why I was tearful is is probably in my ED job now. Um, Okay. 
And so, yeah, I think that's probably the most recent one I can remember clearly because I'm a crier and I'm, no, I'm not ashamed of that. <laughs> do you have any with the patient folks at all? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, so I have uh, a wonderful one where a lady um, with late stage cancer had come in and she was in that limbo period of between the decision that probably they should stop treatment and the help and input being provided um, for, for pain relief and palliative support and that kind of care. And she hadn't really been counselled yet on exactly what had happened. She'd just been told she wasn't receiving any more treatment, active treatment for this, this cancer. And that, that period of limbo happened to land on Christmas, the Christmas holidays. Um, and she came into the emergency department in pain um, and there was nothing I could do. Mm. And I guess this links a little bit back to the healer. I couldn't do anything. I didn't have the drugs that were strong enough. I didn't have the uh, connections on this out of hours time to be able to bring in that support she needed. And it was a case of just just waiting. Um, and I could do my best, but that she was already on kind of the maximum we could safely give. And yeah. and I and I saw a lot in her. She was a similar age to kind of between me and my mum, somewhere around there. And and all she wanted to do was get home and have her last Christmas with her children without being in pain and without being bed bound. And I sat and I looked at her and I felt totally powerless and there was nothing. And I, I phoned a lot of people and I tried to make myself feel like I was doing something. But in the end, um, I couldn't and it almost brings tears to my eyes again because I remember looking at her in, in, in the eyes and just saying I'm going to do the very best I can to find you the support you need yeah. and I am setting up things for when Christmas is over but for the next three four days these are the meds we can give you and I'm sorry they're not working um, and very 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 luckily probably about two hours after that I had a call from one of the nurses from the palliative care team who had gone in and put some emergency measures in and she was going to get help sooner and I like it was relief but for those few hours I I went to my consultant I tried to discuss it and I burst into tears hid in the store cupboard and cried for a good 10 minutes just couldn't talk couldn't communicate just sat and cried and then came out and went on with my job and picked up another patient yeah yeah. That's so moving and it really shows just how much you have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, that in itself is huge. And then to have to carry on for the next three, four, six, twelve hours is, mm. uh, you know, I couldn't imagine. So, I mean, thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for keep keeping it up. Like the resilience that that takes is mm. is incredible. So how, how do you think you manage to go from feeling such intense emotions to, I don't want to say switching off because I don't know if you did, but switching mm. to the next patient and then not letting that affect your judgment? So I think there's a lot of levels to this. I think um, on a one level, I let myself cry to start with, mm. and that was a step in the right direction. Um, I had a moment where I had to decide if I was going to stop if I was going to hold this in and if I was going to move on and I just felt like I needed to cry so I let that that emotional outburst happen um, 
And I have developed a bit of a better practice. I think at the time I literally did walk out and click on the next patient and get right into it. Um, I've learned from then and until now that actually I need to go and take some sips of water and I need to go and look back at the board and make sure there's no other patients that need anything before I pick someone up because it's a distraction technique for my own little sad brain to pick up someone, move on, move on, move on, um, and try and, I think, I guess it's get that gratification of finding someone I can help, um, which sounds really, really strange, but, um, and I think that's that's part of way, but in, in all honesty, I don't think you do deal with it, and I think I take it home with me, um, and sometimes I'm able to let that out on the yoga mat, sometimes I get home, put on sad music, and cry on my yoga mat, um, and sometimes I'm too tired to do that, and I think those are the days where I hold on to it, and I take it. Yeah take it with me somewhere I mean the fact that you kind of took that time to have a cry is so important and you know I'm, I'm just mindful that you know even five or ten minutes even 20 or 30 minutes might not have been enough for mm. what you needed then and I just wondered was there any other support in place for you so we have a kind of a well-being um referral scheme where you can go into a wellness room and put your name in and get a kind of uh, an appointment with someone or a chat with someone it's just to reach out to say I need help I think at the time I didn't feel like I needed that and actually this sound this is also going to sound a bit strange but from the time of experiencing something like that to the three days later when you get some feedback on it I will have seen multiple other patients who have moved me, who have shifted my brain onto a different gear. I will have had an experience where I nearly made a mistake, which has shifted my brain to a different gear and I'm not going to be where I am then. And it's really hard to to flag that up and, and be ready to go and talk to someone about that event. And actually, all these other things happen to kind of not dilute, but almost concentrate everything um, in a different way. So I, I feel like there is there is support there um the tendency for for me to access it isn't isn't necessarily there um which sounds bad but i think the support offering is really good and yeah i do want to touch on support a little bit later so i don't want to do on that too much but cool. so, do you have any experiences or any moving moments from from your practice at all that you'd like to share with us yeah i mean i think for me um a lot of my work is generally quite uplifting so you know I tend to work with people for quite a long period of time um, and I guess you know when I first meet them it might be that they're in a, a dark place and that they're experiencing a lot of pain or suffering but actually you know over the course of therapy or over the course of whatever work it is that we're doing together um, I really see a lot of growth and a lot of healing and to me that's how I remember my patients that's how I remember the people that I work with and I think that's the difference again in in medicine compared to psychology I think oftentimes as a medic you will see a patient once maybe you'll only see them for 10 minutes in their whole life I'm sure there's times where you see people for a lot longer but I, I guess generally speaking that that's probably more the case Whereas as a psychologist, you see people um, for months or maybe years at a time. And so, yeah, absolutely. I like to remember people at their best and, and that's kind of how I, and that's kind of my natural tendency anyway. Cool, thank you. The, the thing I wanted to share was 
um, I mean, the reason why I, I thought this question in the first place is because I don't generally get too emotional at work, um, but I do remember the, my first experience of being brought close to tears. Uh, I think both you guys know I don't really cry very much at all, to be honest. But uh, in my in my second month of being an FY1, so being uh, first year out of qualification in medical school, I was working in elderly medicine. And I was I was working across at Leeds, and there was um, an elderly lady who had come in. Uh, with just a box and a chest infection, had a bit of a cough um, and was feeling a bit rough. So we admitted her because her chest x-ray showed that she had a chest infection. I, I met her on the first day she came in and I met her family and she was happy. She was lovely. Her family were lovely. We all had a nice chat. We all had a laugh and we were like, yeah, we'll give her some antibiotics and she'll be out in, in a couple of days. No problem. Um, and then the next day, I don't actually see her on the ward round when my colleagues does, um, but I, I pass the bay in, in the afternoon and um, one, one of the one of the daughters that I met the previous day grabs me and, and she's like, oh, doctor, like what's going on? Like my mum is just not who she normally is. Like she's completely confused. She's talking a lot of rubbish. She thinks we're going to kill her. And um, Basically, what had happened is a, a chest infection because she, she was on day two of a chest infection and things were getting a little bit worse. Um, she essentially went into what we call delirium, which is just a, a phase of confusion that often happens with elderly people when they have infections and things, things that do get better. But I could just see the amount of worry in this family's face. And I really realized the impact of health and the wider um, family when it comes to medicine and how like how I interact with this family will depend on how optimistic or how rubbish they feel about what's going forward. And I could just see in their eyes that they thought she was going to die within the next like couple of days. Um, whereas if, you, if you've worked with elderly people before, you know, like delirium does get better over time and oftentimes it doesn't take too long. Um, so that's what drew me close to tears, which I was really surprised about actually, because it wasn't a horrible diagnosis. It's, it's horrible to live through if it's your family. I mean, I had a similar thing happen to my mom just at the start of this year. Um, and Celine will tell you that I was a bit of a mess then as well because I was just thinking of the worst. But um, that's what brought me close to tears, which I thought was really crazy um, from, from all the other things. What was it about that, do you think, that made it so emotional for you? Um, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I'm just trying to reflect on it now. I, I think it's just empathising with the family to to think everything's okay and things just to go pretty much tits up in the space mm. of like 12 or 24 hours. Something so, something they've never seen before and they thought their mum was very well and they've come, they've come to hospital and they've just got worse. I think mm. that's what I thought was really sad. Um, I think when a patient is getting worse, that's when things get sad. Hmm. Or, or when you can't, you can't do anything about it, or when you can't set anyone's expectations. Yeah. I think that's a challenge I find that frustrates me and upsets me. Is actually sometimes anything can happen. Sometimes we don't know whether someone's going to get better or not. Sometimes someone's delirium sticks around for six weeks. Sometimes it resolves in three days. Mm -hmm. And setting other people's expectations and managing other people's emotions with that knowledge yourself mm -hmm. is extremely challenging so i can understand why that made you tearful the the only thing i have to add really is one of the things i learned at work is when something like that happens i don't tend to 
leave the situation as such what I tend to do is find my nursing colleagues mm. <laughs> and I talk to them <laughs> because they're very good at, at helping <laughs> very good at just talking you talk, talking to you and talking about what's going on and telling you you've done your best <laughs> that's my way to get around it oftentimes that's so funny that you go to your nursing colleagues and not to your sort of doctor colleagues what's that about <laughs> um I will often go to them but um yeah, I think the nursing colleagues are always really good at calming you down quicker. Um, they, they often have a level of experience as well. They may have worked on that ward or in mm. that context for longer than you have and have seen things like this and be able to provide a bit of insight and often have a great sense of humour too. They also know where all the biscuits are and they make a crack oh. cup of tea, so <laughs> that usually helps. You know, this really makes me think about why people get into these roles in the first place. We know that there are certain types of people who are drawn to professions like um, medicine, mental health um, and nursing. One of the ways that people conceptualise this is through looking at kind of archetypes. So an archetype is basically just a kind of framework or a way of understanding people or things or experiences. There's archetypes around the different types of healers, you know, like the wounded healer. This is someone who has experienced a deep wound in their life. Maybe it's from a trauma or something really difficult that they've gone through that has transformed them and, you know, made them the person that they are. It's become the reason that they take on a role in healthcare or social work. And I guess with a wounded healer, sometimes these people can fall into a trap of not caring for themselves because all their energy goes towards caring for others and they just keep on giving everything they've got until they burn out. I'm sure we've all seen people in our in our jobs where this person is just so done. They're so out of energy, they're out of compassion for the people that they're working for. And I wonder if part of that is to do with, you know, this burnout from just giving and giving and giving and and not taking the time to to heal and to give to themselves. I guess the other type of wounded healer is someone who has gone through that healing process. And so these kinds of people are the kind of doctors, the kind of nurses, etc., that you see who are so wonderful and so great at giving support and the reason for that is because they've been through it and they've seen the other side and they can empathise with how difficult it is to get there but they also have this strong belief and faith that it is possible to recover and to heal. Another trap that the wounded healer can fall into is setting up a kind of economy where people rely on them rather than promoting self-care and self-healing. Now obviously there comes a point where we will need to intervene with people but I also wonder whether we need to be doing more to encourage people to really look after themselves um, and this you know I'm talking very basic things like your food, your diet, your sleep, you know getting out for exercise. And obviously we need to take into account social inequalities when we have this conversation because it is a lot easier for some to access these things than for others. Just think about how expensive fruit and veg are, for example, or how dangerous it might be to run 
um, or go jogging or exercise in a deprived area or to pay for a gym membership, you know, these things aren't equal at the moment. So that's one thing to work on. But besides that, you know, this emphasis on really basic habits, you know, good sleeping habits, good eating, good uh, self-care is so important. There's so much evidence to suggest how much of an impact these can have on your mood. Also, there's that link between having good mental health and having good physical health and vice versa. It's much easier to be physically healthy when you're mentally healthy and it's much easier to be mentally healthy when you're physically healthy. So I'm just going to pause there. I wondered if you guys had anything to add or anything to reflect on about the wounded healer. Um, hands up. I am a wounded healer. I am 100% I'm totally and utterly leveling with that on so many ways. And quite interestingly, I actually this year, um, after about six months in the job, realized that I needed to go into therapy mm -hmm. in order to sustain my clinical and medical practice, mm -hmm. because I am very much the type of person who loves to see people heal. I love to see people get better and I love to be part of that. And what I forget about a lot of the time is that I need to take space for myself. I need to understand that my role in every relationship of my life is not the healer, which actually I don't think I realised. <laughs> um, and it's something that completely blew my mind that you can actually interact with others without needing to support or help them. And actually, like you say, it can be harmful and create harmful and damaging relationships with others if you are continually trying to find ways to support them without working on yourself as well in a healthy way. So, yeah, I feel like I'm I'm kind of in an AA meeting here, standing up with my hands in the air. Like, that is Thank me. you. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you so much for saying that. I think it's so important for, you know, people to, to talk openly about these things mm. there's a phrase that uh we used to have at work that I loved it's you can't pour from an empty cup it's so mm. true mm. it's so true I think that's a really interesting phrase actually because I feel like mm. a lot of medicine has often been you actually have to continue pouring from an empty cup that's that's kind of part of your um your role mm. <laughs> it's take, you take you're like you're yeah, you allow your cup to get empty and maybe you put a lid on it so you can't fill it again and then you just carry on. Mm. Um, so so mm. anyway, that's that's a little bit going off the, the archetype. Uh, <laughs> I also I also would like to say thank you for, for mentioning, Rose, that you've you've been um, making use of therapy. I don't want to say seeking help or anything like that, because I think some people would say that's what therapy is. And I think it's actually a really balanced way to live life, particularly through something as demanding as medicine, especially mm -hmm. when it's when you've just started out in your first year and you're in the middle of COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that's really great. It's 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 actually something that I think regardless of when I started medicine, um, I would have probably had to come to at some point. And I say had to in a way of obviously I have a choice in these things, but it's a decision that that would have presented itself to me. I've I've had a pattern in my life of working really, really, really hard and pushing myself to the point of burnout and then taking years out. 
Um, and although that's that's one way of doing things, it's not the most sustainable and it's not the most risk averse, because if I keep pushing myself to the point of breaking, at some point I might go that a little bit too far. So I've I've made the decision to to try and work on being more sustainable, which actually means pulling back on a lot of the things I'm used to driving forward on, which is a challenge. <laughs> That's, that's great. What I did was I married a psychologist instead. So. Oh, absolutely <laughs> genius. Genius. I, I think that what you said about sustainability is so important. Like you can have amazing, amazing doctors and psychologists and nurses and social workers, particularly, you know, from uh, people who are newly qualified because they have that passion and that drive and you know society tells us like we've got to keep doing better we've got to strive for perfection and a lot of us do that really well but the problem is it we can't keep on doing it for our whole lives eventually it catches up to us and it does impact our work not only does it impact our work it impacts our whole being it impacts our whole life and it's so important to be able to step back and recognize what you're doing um, and the impact that it's having. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, any any other thoughts on the wounded healer? I just think for um, for all of those healers out there um, who want to put a bit of a spin on it, it also has a a slight domino effect in that if people watch others who they want to replicate or they respect who are their inspirations if they watch them push themselves past a point that is that is healthy for them physically or mentally um then it makes you set a standard then watching others who inspire you that is not healthy um or is not helpful for you and i think that's that's something that we see through the entire of healthcare and the entire social work is there is just a stack of dominoes going because everyone is working so hard and so heartfully um, and and not pulling back um, because that's not what we see others do. So I think it's important to note that not everyone who goes into a caring profession is necessarily a wounded healer. So, you know, you've got the archetype of the intuitive healer. This is someone who um, doesn't have strong or profound experience of wounds or pain or suffering um, but still finds themselves drawn to helping and healing others and this just comes from a place of intuition just kind of knowing how to do it without necessarily knowing how they know and this is something I see kind of in my you know in my work there are some people out there who you know will talk openly that they don't know what it's like to experience mental health difficulties, but they still find themselves drawn to this kind of um, career. The other archetype I just wanted to talk about was the caregiver. So this is a slightly different type of healer. So this is someone who doesn't actually heal the, the wounds or the pain of um, the suffering person, but they find satisfaction in just caring for others. So these tend to be the type of people who are very kind, who are very um, maybe motherly. Um, and it makes me think a lot about nurses and kind of the role that they have. Yeah, I don't know if you guys had any reflections on on either the caregiver or the intuitive healer. I don't know quite where I slot in and that's why I briefly mentioned to you at dinner that maybe you should go over the egotistical healer. healer <laughs> 
I think I just feed off people saying good things to me. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know where I resonate, but I can definitely see um, the caregivers amongst uh, some of my colleagues in both in the medical and the nursing profession. Um, I don't know if you can pick out anyone that you know, Rose. I mean, I have some, I'm currently working in the emergency department and you- God with, bless you. I know, it's amazing, it's fantastic. You see the whole world reflected in front of you from the very young to the very old. And I have seen, you'd think in such a chop and changing, very fast paced environment, there wouldn't be room for that. But I have seen a handful of amazingly skilled nurses provide that sense of comfort. You know, that that warm, fuzzy feeling when you even go near them, the hand on your shoulder, both to staff and to, to patients and providing that kind of non-judgmental, always there, always friendly approach. And I just, that's a deep sense of admiration from me to them because yeah, those are the kind of people who I'm just like, wow, but it sounds like they fit into that carer archetype. Yeah, and what a lovely presence to have when you're in A&E, you know, <laughs> someone who's just warm and helps you to feel contained. I think we need more people like that mm. in the profession. Absolutely. And and just to go back to what you said, Talkin, um, I did add in a little bit about um, sort of the, uh, the, the type of person who goes into this with, um, you know, their, their sort of ego in mind. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. Um, so sometimes the wounded healer um, can, you know, like set up that economy where they need others to rely on them. And that's all about, you know, needing that praise they might not necessarily say mm -hmm. that or they might pretend that they're above it but they enjoy being on that pedestal and they secretly crave this admiration and worship that accompanies you know being in a high-up profession so being a doctor and, and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that I think it's you know it is a respected career for a reason um, but again, you know, this is an example of a wounded healer. This is someone who is looking for validation. I'm feeling very exposed right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel you. I can feel the exposure through the computer. <laughs> um, but but it's an important reflection to have, and I think it's good to be kind of self-aware and to to look at you know where you're at at the moment. Not to like um, seem like a sycophant either, Talkeem, but I've seen you when you've, you're feeling at your most well, when you're feeling on top of things or when you're demonstrating that role as a as a as a healer and when you're walking in those steps or walking in those shoes and you're shiny and you exude a really positive energy. And so I think it can't be a negative thing in a way, you know, everything in moderation, but it's it, it makes you who you are in a way. Um, and I think then it makes you bring joy to others. So that's Thank you, Rose. That's, that's really nice for you to say. I really miss you. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing, Talkeen, is that in work like yours, especially when you're surrounded by junior doctors and medical students and things like that, to have someone who has that level of confidence is so reassuring, you know, to people mm -hmm. that they feel like, okay, well, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, but this person knows what they're doing so I can follow their lead you know perhaps they look at you as a role model maybe you know at, at the very least you get things done right and you do it well so each of these archetypes you know there's no right or wrong there's no good or bad it's just about recognizing your strengths and weaknesses 
within that um within that archetype and you might not fit into any of them you might jump from one to the other i mean i think i sort of fit into the kind of all of these categories <laughs> at times in my life you know it really is not a hard science but i think it's just an interesting way to kind of think about things all right thank you very much for going through that with us Celine. Any more to add in terms of um, your, your experiences from work from a negative perspective before we move on to positive perspectives? No? Okay, so we'll, we'll go back to Rose. Can you think of a, a recent or a, or a memory that really sticks out for a pleasant experience from work? This can be around uh, about a patient or it can be about colleagues or anything really. I mean, I feel like I need to sell a little bit. We've 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 been breaking <laughs> it. That's it. <laughs> but I'm going to be completely honest. So yeah. I've had wonderful moments of connections with my colleagues. I've had mm -hmm. a wonderful sense of kind of camaraderie in teams, and I have met some amazing and supportive junior doctors who almost feel like family. You can be on a ward with them for three or four weeks or a placement, and you feel like you can't imagine life without them. And then you move on to your next placement, <laughs> and it's very strange. But they are solid, and they wave to you around the hospital, and you build this wide net of friends um, probably some of the most heartwarming and fuzzy joyful moments I've had have been to do with patients because um, because that's what makes me tick probably um, and I had one recently with a with a very elderly very frail bedbound gentleman who came in and looking from the end of the bed in all honesty, it looked like a um, a skeleton had kind of been draped in a sheet. He was just so frail and fragile, almost like he could blow away um, and very, very drawn face. But then he, I was standing there and he opened his eyes and he had these bright blue, lively eyes and he gave me kind of half a smile. Um, and I kind of did my usual introductions and and he was just the most incredible he had. He was witty. He could barely move his arms and legs, but he was pulling out one liners all over the place. He was spreading love about his wife, saying she was his everything and that she cooked and she was in, she nursed him. And, and all he wanted to do was get back to her. And he didn't want to be in hospital. And I could completely level with him on that. Um, unfortunately, he had something that was this potentially life-threatening so did have to stay in for a period but I was able to kind of chat through his priorities of care with him and, and say you know where where do you want the input and how much do you want and are you do you want to accept certain medications and and is there a limit on how long you want to be here before you say actually you know I want to go home whether that means I pass away or not because he was that at that stage of frailty and we had an amazing chat in amongst amazing anecdotes and laughter. And then I came away and sorted out all his documentation to secure kind of his wishes in, in a form, um, which we call a respect form for all those medical people out there. Um, and I came back and I, I said, I've, I've had a chat to your wife on the phone and I've done this, she sends her love. And he just looked at me and he, he grabbed my hand and it's the first time I'd seen him probably reach out and move. And he held it and he looked me in the eyes with these bright beaming blue eyes and he just said, I was hoping for someone like you and I said what <laughs> what do you mean and he said I just wanted someone I could talk to I was so afraid coming into hospital that people wouldn't listen to me and people wouldn't look at me and you've looked me in the face and you've told me that I'm safe and that's 
all like like all I wanted and I just felt this like buzz of electric energy and I kind of sat there for like what felt like hours probably was 30 seconds just holding his hands and smiling at him and we didn't say another word and I'd already briefed him on the fact that I'm an ED doctor so I'm I'm gonna say goodbye to you now and you're gonna go up to a ward and so he knew that was the case and we kind of parted and I just walked on clouds because even in the perverse way I knew that actually probably he didn't have very long left to live um, and he didn't want to be in hospital and all of those things I felt like I'd made a difference to his experience and I felt like those precious days or weeks towards the end of your life are the most you know, are some of the most important in setting up kind of the quality of your life and how and how you feel on your deathbed which we don't talk about as medics enough I don't think um, because we watch a lot of people die um, and it was just amazing to be able to provide a bit of comfort for him and to feel like I really connected with someone, um, it, someone so much older than me as well. It was amazing. And I just, even though I did cry at that one as well, but it was like a positive cry. I don't know whether other people do that. It was like a smiling, beaming, eyes watering, yeah. no one look at me cry. I'm radiating sunshine. Um, so that was my positive experience and it was just astonishing. Um, yeah. How long do you hold on to those positive feelings for? So I have learnt through therapy uh, to, <laughs> hashtag everyone needs therapy, but I have learnt through therapy um, to kind of create a little little bank almost, a little um, catalogue of things that I can call upon when my questioning, doubting, um, shaming mm -hmm. kind of inner dialogue comes up to bring myself back to remembering that I can feel positive sensations in my job about myself in all of these ways. So I keep a little cash and I have a journal. So although those positive feelings when I come into work in the morning aren't there every day, I feel like there's something I can draw upon. Um, they do fade. And in the days where I've made, maybe made a mistake, which is another thing we don't talk about enough as medics, but when I've done something wrong, um, oh, I'm fallible. Um, in those days where I feel like the, the narrative is really loud, I can't connect to them at all. Um, and that's a shame. But I do have them there in my bank for when I need them and when I'm able to access them. Cool. That's really nice. It's really lovely to hear. I hope you have a big extended bank because I'm I'm sure you do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's slowly growing. <laughs> Celine, do you have any positive experiences you'd like to, to bring up, reflect on? I mean, I think like like I mentioned, most of my encounters end, you know, positively. Um, and and that's an amazing feeling to to see the growth and the change and the healing that people go through. Um, and to know that you've been a small part of that is is so rewarding. Um, I guess, you know, in, in a general sense, working with kids is an absolute delight particularly when I was working with um, kids with autism spectrum disorder that was honestly my favorite I would spend sessions awkwardly like fortnight dancing with them and talking about all sorts of weird and wonderful things um, and I really felt like I could just uh, be, be a kid again and that was great um, so I you know I look back fondly on things like that but actually as Rose was talking it really reminded me of the reason I got into or one of the reasons I got into healthcare in the first place and I don't know if I've told you this story before but um, 
when I was I want to say 15 or 16 I volunteered at my local hospital and I was on a stroke ward and there was a woman there and um, she had been there forever as far as I was concerned she was always there um, whilst other people seemed to keep on coming and going um, she was there for a really long time and and I never saw her with visitors so I'd always see other you know other families popping in to to visit the the people in the beds beside her I never saw her with visitors and I remember one day asking the nurse oh you know what's what's her story does she have family you know what, what what's going on with her and the nurse said oh she doesn't talk and and that was it and that was the end of the conversation and I just thought oh well that's awful like surely what does that even mean like can she not talk because of her stroke or does she choose not to it just didn't sit right with me so I I started to make a bit of an effort to kind of connect with this woman and you know it was small things to begin with I didn't want to kind of overwhelm her but you know just bringing her a glass of water just making a really light conversation best I could come up with at the time was you know oh lovely weather and you know the, the typical things you come up with when you're awkward and don't know what to say but you're trying anyway and um, it took about three weeks of me doing this and um, then she she sort of um, gestured to me so she kind of called me over without you know vocalizing so I went over to see you know or maybe she wants some water or something and she looked at sort of her bedside table and there was a brush on it and she just sort of nodded towards it and I picked it up and um, I asked oh would you like me to brush your hair and she nodded so I brushed her hair and for the first time ever I saw her smile and um you know this is a woman who must have been there weeks if not months probably months um, and I'd never seen anything from her she was always very still very you know quiet and and she smiled and then when I put the brush down she said thank you and that was incredible that just you know blew me away so that was when I was like right I you know I want to keep on doing this I want to you know I want to do this for a career like what career will let me kind of help help people and connect with people like this um, and here I am I think sometimes those little things you do with particularly elder, elderly people I find now I find, uh, elderly people is something I have a lot more experience with because I did pretty much a year of elderly last year um, mm. like feeding them porridge like even though it's not particularly in in the job, jobs this job description but if there's a bowl of porridge and I'm on world, world round and they haven't touched it I am obligated to put a spoonful in their mouth and see what happens <laughs> um, and often not on a stroke ward just not not, <laughs> not, not on a stroke ward no FYI but, all those really lovely medical students who are <laughs> run around the hospitals now <laughs> feeding everyone spoonfuls check they can swallow first yeah check check <laughs> check it's okay for them to swallow it's usually on the board behind them if they're on a stroke ward um but they will often start eating it and they'll be very thankful and a basic human need like that like to fulfill it can make you very happy and can make them very happy as well um, so combing hair isn't something i've got into there was once a patient with with, with head lice on the wall but i won't bring oh. that up now um but i did go you out just of my way. did i did go out, i did go out of my way to walk across the hospital like 
across the road to find a pharmacy that had a knit comb and I paid for it myself oh but I did I didn't I didn't comb it myself I'm sorry oh. <laughs> I, I put the effort in no I respect that <laughs> this reminds me of the orange story oh, no, what's <laughs> I feel so, like uh, what's the orange story tell me tell me I may have forgotten which orange story so I don't know if it was an orange or what it was, but you had a you had a patient who was was desperate for an orange, and you went out to <laughs> W H Smith and got him one. Yeah. Just just because you yeah. you could just yeah. you know. Yeah. I, if if a patient, particularly like if a patient who's not been eating or anything at all, and and we're like, oh no, why is their oral intake so rubbish? And you go and ask them what they want, and they say they want an orange, and all we've been giving them is porridge and like I don't know chicken and rice or something get them the bloody orange how hard can mm -hmm. it be <laughs> mm. yeah impromptu paper rounds are a real regular when I was working when uh, <laughs> the other hospitals like we we just pop down and in between ward rounds yeah. buy buy people a paper because it was COVID times for one and they just looked really bored and I, I would be bored <laughs> I once bought this this lady I was looking after a birthday cake because it was her birthday oh. and she had no she had no family and um she didn't eat it whilst I was there and then when I came back to the world round the next morning I was like yo do you remember the cake and she was like what cake <laughs> she <didn't> remember. Oh, <laughs> but, no. but, but the nurses told me she ate it and she really oh. enjoyed it so that's, that's what matters I was gonna, these I, are the I things guess, that bring joy bring joy I, yeah joy. I guess that's what really leads me into the, the parts I love about the job and the, the fact is I absolutely love the job one of the things I always tell medical students like after I've, after everyone's complained a little bit, I'm like, I absolutely love the job. I love my first year of the of work. I loved what I was doing during doing during COVID times. Apart from the rotors, which I'm going to touch on in a mm. second, um, but I love it. I love being at work. I love I love doing the job. I love meeting people. I love meeting patients. I love helping. I love the camaraderie, like like you mentioned, Rose. Like it's just a big family, a big team. Everyone's in it together. And even when everything's rubbish, we're doing rubbish together so it's fun and um, during COVID when everybody was locked down we could still go into work and socialize like one of the things I was saying like I've been locoming a lot so picking up extra shifts and one of the reasons is is because when Solin's working at home I can just go get paid to socialize with a new team mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so so it's, it's a luxury I, I really enjoy it um, so yeah my my general positive experience is, is just the job to be fair uh, it's it's great um, and just leading on to things, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the feeling of feeling valued. I feel very valued by patients. I feel very, very valued by colleagues, but I don't feel valued by the system, um, particularly because the way rotors are set up, particularly because it feels like I'm just a number and a, mm -hmm. and a filler of rotor gaps, which has meant the last three weeks I spent working nights. Um, with very little extra pay um it's not all about the money but when you're working three weeks of nights in a row it it hurts me a little bit <laughs> yeah, um, oh gosh and i've been i've not been sleeping very well this week and i think it's partly because i've gone from nights to, to days and then that does affect my mood and then that does make me feel a bit rubbish about work and that does make me feel like taking a year out and, and locoming instead and working on my own terms mm. um so i don't know if you if you guys have similar situations where you feel unvalued maybe by the system um because i'm pretty sure lots of our medical and nursing colleagues will have the same thing i don't know what it's like from a psychology perspective 
I mean, this this reminds me of the advert that the government put out at the beginning of the coronavirus. I'm sure I mentioned this with you, but um, it was something along the lines of doctors, nurses, teachers, all of you key workers, we love you. Like, thank you so much. And I was like, oh, that's really nice. And then I was like, hang on. They've listed every profession except mine. So I, I didn't list all of them. There was a, a long list of 10 or 12 professions and psychology was nowhere on there. There was nothing about mental health on there. And that was really depressing. Oh, gosh. Um, I think at work, I do feel very valued within my team and within my, you know, within my employment. But when it comes to the government, I do feel that mental health takes a backseat and I think that's a problem. Um, I think that's a big problem and it, it contributes to this stigma around mental health and it doesn't help when you consider how much mental health is linked with physical health. And I think, maybe I'm going off on a tangent, but for me, you know, if we had more holistic care, this would be a much better system because right now we have so many specialists and so many niche clinics and and actually I think that's not that helpful because most people don't come in with one complaint they've got a whole host of difficulties um consider a cancer patient of course they've got you know a highly um life-threatening um disease but also they probably have a lot of mental health problems alongside that because how could you not feel anxious mm. or depressed when you've got something like cancer and it's, mm. it's ridiculous that you'd have to go to one clinic for your cancer and a completely different clinic you know to get support with your mental health it's it's yeah it's not to me I don't know whether you found this as well but often specialities also speak different languages and have different priorities mm -hmm. and cannot necessarily communicate um, which is another challenge because sometimes a patient ends up as a go-between trying to communicate things to different specialists which is just adding to stress um, which so I'm I'm like hands up again but in support of that whole sentiment um, that was yeah that was that was the uh, internal dialogue I have going in my head a lot of the time just <laughs> completely spoken out loud I love it um, being valued I think is one of those things that it sounds airy fairy, but sometimes it's super simple. Like it's it's not always about kind of massive gestures. Um, the government, for example, is really great with buzzwords on mental health. It's really great with throwing out tokenism and throwing out some buzzwords and and things like that. But actually, the basics you need is money, is funding. Is that's that's very simple, and it's the same with feeling valued as a doctor. So at one point during this pandemic, we were told that we weren't allowed to eat the biscuits that were for the patients even though there were boxes and boxes and boxes of them and on a night sometimes you are running so fast and it is literally the only calories you can get and I know that sounds like I'm ill prepared for my night shifts but I'm also a very very naive f1 and on occasion I need a chocolate bourbon um, which are vegan, by the way. But yeah, on occasion, I need a chocolate bourbon. And we were told and there was a big letter and great length went to be stuck letters and post-its on different objects that we weren't allowed to use. And I, I again, 
theme here was almost brought to tears when I went in on my night and found that someone had labeled and I felt guilty because I felt like I'd been doing something wrong but I also felt like my very basic human needs I wasn't allowed to use the mugs that were in that room I wasn't allowed to eat the food that was in that room and those are the very basic things that I didn't have when I was working the hours that I'm demanded to work so I think feeling valued can be very simple and it can be um, very much overlooked as well because it can be so simple people wouldn't read into that action of saying no one's allowed to eat the biscuits that someone down the line feels undervalued and vulnerable and possibly hypoglycemic but <laughs> it's, that's what it's funny it's funny you bring up the bourbons on a night because literally on my last set of night shifts I was hungry and I was <laughs> ill-prepared and I, I didn't have time to get a takeaway because the takeaways around here close at midnight so and and we've gone past midnight because you know what on calls are like you sometimes mm -hmm. you can't plan for these things and um I asked one of the nurses like oh yo where do you keep the biscuits and she was like oh they're in there but it's a sackable offense to eat them and I was like oh no one ever told me yeah. this so I, I ate a pack of bourbons uh bourbons yeah. sorry um and and that's my story sorry I've just admitted it on no. Spotify I know I feel like we're all gonna get sacked but it's fine so yeah it's okay they're, they're struggling to fill the water gaps anyway I'm sure <laughs> the biscuits are fine I have also eaten yeah chocolate bourbons um so I feel like it's those little things and and sometimes when someone makes the effort to make sure that those things are provided suddenly it all changes but also decent working hours would be great um mm -hmm. as an aside <laughs> And again, I, I think, think that comes down to money as well, with mm. uh, which is, I guess, the the realistic things so the government just needs to sort out. Thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think this is an area where I feel really blessed because as a psychologist, um, this doesn't apply to every psychologist, but certainly most of them, um, we work nine to five, and so there's that that you know we at least know we can kind of plan our time and one of the hardest things about being married to a doctor is like <laughs> I never know like are you around next week what are you doing and we can't make consistent plans because the shifts are just so unpredictable and mm -hmm. you know there there is a lot of um, night shifts a lot of weekend working lots of unsociable hours um, and I don't know how you do it I really oh do you remember when I told my road coordinators about two months in advance that we were getting married on the next um, oh, no. on, on a day and I wanted the following week off and then when I got the rota given to me three weeks before I started the job I was working that weekend and the following week <laughs> um, <laughs> <so> yeah wow <laughs> so just, just to wrap up because we've, we've we've definitely hit the one hour mark um, oh, wait, we've been talking for so long how how can people in these careers best look after themselves do, do, do you think mm. shall i shall i go first as i've had Take the luxury away. of um taking some time to think about this before we've kind of sprung this on your rose um <laughs> i guess for me like this is similar to what i said in the obesity um podcast but i think for me there's something really important about different levels of intervention so absolutely like starting off with prevention so you know that might include raising awareness of mental health in general and just creating a culture where it isn't stigmatized to seek help it isn't stigmatized to look after yourself and where you have regular check-ins with your colleagues and you know not just a hi how are you okay great like a proper like 
you know, a good chance to actually check how, you know, how each other is doing. I think that there need to be targeted interventions in place. Um, so like Rose mentioned, you know, whether it's a wellbeing team um, associated with the hospital or the clinic or wherever it is you're working um, or effective signposting to where that support can be um, received. And then on a systemic level, again, it's all about kind of creating this wider culture of, um, of self-care and really being able to promote the use of um, boundaries in work. So not staying beyond your shift, um, not going like above and beyond all the time because that's not sustainable. And being able to have a work-life balance because you know, you can go through a lot at work um, and if you have the chance to recharge yourself or if you have other things going on, then at least that's something to hold on to and something to get you back to your yourself. Whereas if you're going from one shift to another and you just have nothing else going on, nothing else in between, you're staying late, you're seeing your seniors staying late and you know, it just becomes very toxic environment and it becomes the only part of your life. And then as soon as something goes wrong, it all comes crashing down. And it's and that's when it gets really difficult to cope with. And that's why I think there's such high rates of burnout. There's such high rates of, um, you know, leaving the profession. And, the, you know, we have to be frank, there's high rates of depression and there's high rates of suicide. And, you know, we, we need to be moving away from that and we need to be encouraging people to do what they need to do in the name of self-care but also providing opportunities for them to do that. Hmm. Rose do you have anything to add there? Oh once again my internal dialogue um, I'm going to claim credit for everything you've said <laughs> just now. No um, so I think I guess we can look at it on the personal level of I think what has benefited me and what I've had to learn. I came into this and I was like I was like a Bambi on a skateboard, like just trying to stay somehow surfing above the surface of having a bit of a breakdown because it's a scary job and there's lots of responsibilities. And also suddenly I had a dog and a relationship and a house and bills and all of these adult things that I'm semi allergic to, if I have to admit. <laughs> Um, and all of these things were going on at the same time. So I think Bambi on a skateboard to start with. But I think the things that I've learned from that and I've started to feel a little probably hopped off the skateboard now, um, probably just on ice at the moment. But we, I have learned that reflecting and I know it's something that we say in, and often in the medical um, profession, I am going to point fingers at all of you. We all roll our eyes and like oh, reflecting. We have to do this many reflections, but actually reflecting on your mood and your practice and understanding where you are putting your energy, because sometimes I feel like I don't want to do this job anymore. And it tends to correlate directly with when I haven't had enough sleep, when I haven't drunk enough and when I haven't eaten food, all of those things happening are enough to make anyone feel like they want to give up. And you know, in those situations, I still go and I realise I've been treating patients without having eaten or having been bursting for the toilet for six hours. And and you don't notice. And it's only by reflection and, and signposting in your own mind and getting in a routine of questioning every time you pick up a new patient or every time you do a new ward round, every time you pick up a new task, have I, have I actually looked after myself basic needs at this point? 
where is my mood going? What directions are my mood going day to day? And are there any things that are influencing those that I can control? Um, and prioritizing, I think, is another thing. Having some non-negotiables, non-negotiables, some some boundaries of I'm doing this. I'm gonna go for a walk outside at least three times a week and if that means I have to say actually I'm going home from work now and I'm going to have to hand this over even though I don't want to I'm going to do that those kind of things on a systemic level I mean exactly what you said we need an open culture we need people absolutely putting their hands up and saying oh yeah I asked for help here and I posted my name in the well-being box to, to get phoned back three days ago and oh yeah I go to therapy regularly um, and if you're not going to therapy regularly or if you're not doing those things, maybe voicing that to people, because actually, if someone comes up to me and said, I had a hard time, but I don't, I'm, I'm not going to put my name in there. I, I can just facilitate a question why. And I'm sure any of your colleagues will. So I think it's just having those conversations and putting yourself out there and talking about it that will shift the culture. I think there may be a, a level above um, some of the generations that may not be ready for the well-being friendly mm -hmm soft cushioned room um, but see if within your junior team you can really open up those channels of discussion you mentioned some of the old school doctors mm. not ready for change and i think the really good thing right now is i'm starting to see registrars tell me that i need to take a break registrars yes. making sure that the, the f1s are going for lunch i definitely tell the f1s to go for lunch i will be the first to leave for lunch if i'm on ward cover i'll be like right it's lunchtime like everything else can be sorted later and one of the things i learned early on whilst i was still in medical school when i was on my elective was the gp i worked with he taught me to take at least a f at least three five to ten minute headspace breaks where he just put everything down let his head flap back into his chair close his eyes hands across his chest and he'd just chill and um, that's been really useful on, on busy shifts as well, just headspace breaks. Although now they've gone from five minutes to going down to the mess, getting a coffee and, and chilling for 15 minutes. I don't mind if my list still has 10 patients left to see. I'm going to work more efficient if I've taken that break. And I think it's definitely a culture, culture shift change. No more 12 and a half work, hours of work without taking breaks. It's just silly and it's unneeded and it's inefficient. This really links to kind of one of the main differences that I've seen in terms of the doctor's training compared to a psychologist's training, and that is the level of supervision that you guys get, which sounds, from what I've heard, minimal to non-existent. So as a psychology trainee, I get, oh, at the moment I'm getting an hour and a half a week of supervision where I have the opportunity to reflect on what I'm doing um, <clears throat> with my patients, what I'm doing with my life and how to improve. And I'm constantly learning in supervision. And I just think it's such a valuable space. And that in itself might be enough for someone to not feel that they need wellbeing support or therapy. It might be that middle ground where you're learning and you're developing. And it's part of your training and development. But also what you're doing is really contributing to client outcomes and it's really contributing to your own well-being um so supervision is so valuable and i yeah i, I really think you guys need more of it great i think that's a wrap so thank you so much both for sharing your experiences and thank you rose for being here it's been truly lovely to have you 
Lovely to be here. It's been awesome. I'm smiling. You've been listening to Happy Healthy Hungry. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Please do feel free to email us with any feedback, comments or questions or topics that you'd like us to discuss. The email address is happyhealthyhungry at outlook.com. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week. Bye.